Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. If we want to change the game for the industry, we must, must, must invest in our people. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post is launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday and packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. Sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you'll check it out. As a leader, it takes courage to experience a problem and then chart a new course to remedy it. But you have to have vision to see that problem before it happens and make it part of your solution. Andy Hooper of And Pizza is that kind of visionary. His early investments in technology and company culture have paid dividends over the last nine months. They spent 2020 growing the company and will expand even farther in 2021. In this episode, we unpack the concepts he's created and how he successfully executed them despite the pandemic. We begin with the path that led him to Ant Pizza. I am, fortunately or unfortunately, a lifelong restaurant guy. My first job outside of like mowing lawns as an early teenager was washing dishes at a full service restaurant. And from that, all the way through college, ended up getting my first job after school at Burger King, who was headquartered in South Florida. And I spent the first decade of my career there in a series of different human resources jobs, both there and outside of the US. Went from there to help some partners and good friends of mine on a business out West in Salt Lake City, and spent a good amount of time building up that business, fast casual Mexican chain called Cafe Rio Mexican Grill. Joined there Mm -hmm. when there were 40 and left when there were about 140. And then came here, started about three years ago to the day in partnership with Michael Destoria and Ann Pizza. And as a lifelong restaurateur and HR leader by trade, one of the things I was searching for more than anything else was a chance to make an impact. And I saw the model of And Pizza and its values and where I thought it could go. And honestly, hadn't seen anything that was a better fit for me ever than where I am today. Let's talk about tools and resources, because one, growing a fast casual chain to that size had to be a very educational experience. I mean, look at the behemoth, the Burger King. I can't imagine that there weren't amazing lessons to learn from that experience as well. What did you take with you? I mean, honestly, Burger King and the time that I was there, I'm not sure I could have imagined a better opportunity to learn. When I joined, it had been a portfolio company of Diageo for several years and 
was finally breaking out to have its own brand identity again for the first time in 25 to 30 years. And the time that I was there was an amazing time to be at Burger King. The caliber of talent that poured through that company over those 10 years was absolutely remarkable. And many of the leaders that I had the privilege of working with in any function are running a lot of restaurant companies today based on the benefits that they got from the experience in our time there together. I think when you work for a brand like Burger King, which is essentially dependent upon all of these individual owner operators and a huge franchise network, both here and around the world, you come to appreciate that in the restaurant business, the product you're really selling is people at the end of the day. Like every one of these individual owner operators is in business with 20 to 30 people. They're the lifeblood of their local community. And the business that they're in is very different than the one that people imagine them to be in when you think about how big a company like that is. And I think for me, early on in my career, it really gave me a lot of empathy for what goes into independent restaurateurs and what they have to do every day to make things work. And you still wanted to do it. (laughs) I know, it's crazy. I grew up thinking... I don't ever want to be in the restaurant business, not because I don't like food, but because my dad was in the food business and I swore I would never get into it. And of course, like just about everything else, the things you say you're not going to do, you get drawn to and investigate and come to find that there's actually a lot there for you. And for me, the chance to impact people on a massive scale is just nowhere better represented than in the restaurant business. I mean, it's the largest private employer in the country. And it's a huge chunk of people. And I think especially during these last 10 months of COVID, the entire world has come to see how central restaurants are, how essential they are to community, to the economy, and to the mental health of all of us. And I guess what I'm curious about in terms of your transition into and pizza, entrepreneurs start businesses because they see a hole that needs to be filled. And you wanted to make impact. But impact on what in particular? What was the hole that you saw in the market that you wanted to fill? I think when I look at the restaurant business holistically, a lot of money goes into controlling operating costs because so much of the business is based on food and labor, like two very large costs in operating a restaurant. And I was always kind of confused by the fact that people spent so much money lobbying on things like suppressing wage or obscuring nutritional information or the calorie counts on things. And it kind of thought to myself, man, I don't understand why that has to be a mutually exclusive setup there where like the only way to get ahead is to like hold things down. And as an HR leader by trade, I wanted to change people's lives. I wanted to see how many people you could raise up from that first minimum wage job all the way through to multi-unit leadership and to actually building wealth for their families for the future. And when I saw Ann Pizza, and I met Michael, who started the company back in 2012, for me, it was a real opportunity to partner with somebody and to take on a leadership role in a company where that was in the wood. The business model of making pizza is predisposed to taking greater risks. And being in a place like Washington, D.C., and having the opportunity to really not just participate in that, but potentially steer where the industry is going was a big deal for me. Because I think, again, back to those days of Burger King and individual franchisees, you have to give people an example of where they're headed. Like You can't just shout on the mountaintops and speak from a moral superiority spot and say, do this because... You have to be able to show them that it works at the end of the day, because that's what sustainability is about. 
I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of, read, and followed someone like Simon Sinek and like this concept of whether you're playing a finite game like sport or whether you're playing an infinite game. And for a lot of these businesses, especially the restaurant industry, it's an infinite game. The players, they come and go. The rules change. There's no defined endpoint. You're only ahead or behind. And with 10% of America's workforce, you have a real opportunity to lift a lot of people out of difficult situations in their communities and really change the game. And for me, that's what was most attractive about coming to Ant Pizza. But how do you maintain that ideology when resources are just so scarce? I feel like I did well in this industry, but I was always worried about money and I never had enough money and I never had enough time. And obviously over the course of doing eight months worth of interviews, I figured out that I was a huge part of the problem. But it's also, I don't know if restaurants are set up to fail, but they're certainly set up to struggle. So how did you pair the execution of your vision with the ideology that you have? For me, I think the key is, and I think you framed it this way, Josh, the question has to start with, how do you maintain it? I think a lot of times the challenge is that the question gets framed in an adversarial posture out of the gate. Like you don't hear a multi-unit manager say to a single unit operator, I really want to spend more on labor today. Like the conversation is, I got to cut labor. You don't hear people talking about, I want to spend more on my food. You hear people say, how do I cut my food costs? And I think for me, it's the mindset. It's the idea that like framing that somehow as a loss leader question is different than saying, how do I maintain my ideology and be able to build something that's sustainable? And what I've come to find out, and I think what I'm appreciating about this opportunity and where I think the industry needs to go is to start asking those questions of the people that are doing the work. It's amazing how many ideas and thoughts come from the people who are on the front lines of your business doing the work for ideas about how to do it more efficiently. I think specifically about a really interesting example that we encountered in our business about a year and a half ago. We were having a challenging time managing late night pizza shops here in DC. We do a brisk late night business. You can imagine that in non-COVID times, one of our pies at three in the morning after some beers or a night at the club, like that is it. And pizza at 3 a.m., it tastes amazing. And so we historically have been one of the late night food operators in DC and been known and associated with that day part. We always closed at four o'clock in the morning, which was a fellow restaurateur, you know, you got to close and clean and set up the next shift for success. Right. You're in no man's land at 445 in the morning. Yeah. Nothing's going on. Nothing's open. There's no transit or anything. That finite mindset of kind of going back to and thinking about like, how do I cut costs? What you do is you're like, okay, you got to get out of the shop sooner. You're spending too much time closing. We got to close earlier so that we don't have all this labor that's wasted between four and six in the morning. But if you flip the script and you go to those people on the front line and you democratize the decision making and say, here's the problem I've got. Right now, we are spending too much time and too much money closing this restaurant after late night. What should we do to solve it? People raised their hand. They said, we can't get home. We have to wait until six in the morning for transit to start running again. So let's either stay open later or let's figure out a different way to get home. And the reality is staying open later, no real business between four and five in the morning, mm -hmm. but you can help people get home. And so we entered into this partnership with Lyft. They subsidized the ride. We subsidized the ride. And for five bucks, somebody could get a ride home at 420 in the morning. Turned out to be huge. We had better closes, saved a bunch of money on labor. 
And the money we spent on the partnership subsidizing it was a fraction of what we were spending in wasted labor before. But aside from the economics, my team felt heard. Like they were involved in proposing something that they had ownership in. And then they loved it because we got to celebrate it with the rest of the business. And I think for me, that's the key. If you want to maintain the ideology, but kind of bend the rules a little bit, you need more people's brains around the problem. And more than anything, we find that when you democratize those decisions to the front line, you get really creative ideas about how to do it. You mentioned Simon Sinek, and the bulk of my education has actually come from outside of the industry. I try and learn from thought leaders across all industries because I feel like they all have so much value to add that I can then actively use in my own business. And are you in the same boat? And if so, who do you follow? Who do you learn from? Who are your heroes and mentors? I look up to people who think about things differently than I do. I've always been a believer in looking for people with diverse perspectives because part of the reason that you democratize decision-making is because those people can cover your blind spots. Early in my career, I had a professional mentor, a team of consultants, one of whom in particular, though, at this firm in Southern California called Sendalini Leadership Consulting. And a partner and good friend of mine still today, John McKay, taught me a lot about how my own human operating system works. And one of the things I know to be true about myself is that my own selective perception and the limitations of my own life experiences give me blind spots. And there are things that I just don't see and can't forecast as well as somebody else. And so I go out looking for people who problem solve differently than me. A great example of that is my partner here, the founder of Ant Pizza, Michael Astoria, is very different from me in a lot of ways. Like He and I solve problems differently. We lead teams differently. We see issues differently. And I think that diversity combined with some curiosity and grace with one another leads to the ultimate partnership when you can really watch each other's back and identify where you can fill in the gaps. When I look to the business world or the world at large for inspiration, I look for people like Elon Musk, for example, who's crazy, but like who thinks about things very differently and say, gosh, why is he thinking about it that way? And A great example, the other day I was reading something that he said, and he's talking about how CEOs and presidents don't spend enough time focused on their product. Mm -hmm. And that really resonates with me because you think about big organizations that are founder-led and people creating things and entrepreneurship, the bigger that thing gets, the further they get from what made it to begin with. And in the restaurant industry, that's people. The product of restaurants is people. And I think a lot of times as organizations scale, they forget that you got to focus on that product with the same intensity that you did if you owned an individual restaurant. In the restaurant business, that's why in many ways, like I look up to the model that Chick-fil-A has built, where you've got these individual restaurateurs with a single unit. They don't let them operate more than one. That person has absolute focus and you drive $6 million in sales on six days a week. That is just a prime example of how you can really, really, really focus that energy in a meaningful way. And so I try to read as much as I can. I spend almost every day in the industry rags, in technology. I think when I look at the restaurant business, one of the best things to happen to the restaurant business is delivery. Lots of restaurateurs will totally disagree. They're going to say, this is terrible. And the only reason we're making it through COVID is because at least they've capped the delivery fees from a lot of these aggregators. And I'm not talking about the fact that DoorDash and Uber Eats and Postmates by themselves 
are good for restaurants. But what I'm talking about is it's brought innovative thinking around how technology can play into the customer experience into something that has historically been so reticent to adopt new technology. I mean, ask any restaurateur what they think of their POS system, and they're going to come up with a different acronym for POS. Restaurants are not by nature tech leaders. And so for that reason, like I look up to Uber and DoorDash and Postmates and even Grubhub from that perspective. And to the little guys like Nabil and the team at Lunchbox, and those are like really disrupting things today that I think are important for the future of restaurants having relevance. Let's unpack that because your relationship with technology is so different from everyone else's. Tech, innovation, and leveraging that to create a more hospitable experience for the customer has been one of the foundational elements of Ann Pizza. And I'm curious to know two things. One, what was your perspective on tech as you got into this? And then two, practically, how have you leveraged tech to create a more hospitable experience? When I started here, I was coming off of six years with a team and a company with Cafe Rio that had an amazingly loyal fan base. We had moved off of an analog loyalty program onto a digital loyalty program at the time, which was white-labeled. And we had 50% of our transactions were loyalty transactions. Insane. Like better than Starbucks, better than Panera, better than anybody, frankly, in terms of the volume at the time. And I entered this at Ann Pizza with a real appreciation and power for how that enabled intimacy and hospitality for that brand. And also looked at it and said, what would happen if we were leading on that? Because when I was with the team at Rio, we were following a bit on that. And we were fortunate to have the loyalty we had through the analog program. As Michael and I kind of got working together, it was very clear that this is a brand that was positioned to leverage technology to create an experience that felt primary for customers. That because pizza customers in particular had become accustomed to ordering online, ordering through an app, seeing digital innovation through big pizza, that there was a real opportunity to do creative things with it because the experience of ordering delivery was already something that was kind of like parcel of ordering a pizza. Mm -hmm. And so we fortunately have made investments far in advance. And certainly those paid off in spades this year in 2020 because of COVID. There's a big opportunity to be able to use tech to actually create intimacy, not to create distance. I think in the restaurant business generally, restaurateurs' perception of technology is that it is a labor replacement, Mm -hmm. that a kiosk can replace a cashier, that a POS can replace an analog cash register, that a drive-through timer can speed up and maybe limit the amount of labor you have to put in. And I see it differently. I see technology as an accelerator for the people in the space and for the intimacy and the relationship. And the and pizza story of tech is one where we have invested in building our own technology stack that is built upon the idea that one-to-one communication, primarily using text messaging, can be almost more intimate than the hospitality that you can deliver in person in a pizza shop or even in a restaurant. I think we've seen and learned a lot during the last eight months about how that can drive real engagement with the brand during a time when somebody takes your hands and ties them behind their back. And you know, when you lose your dining room, like many restaurateurs have lost, 
you're short a lot of options for how you can creatively communicate brand with authenticity and vulnerability to people. And if you think about how as a human being, we communicate with one another, text messaging is it. It's the opportunity to connect. It can be informal. It's the real you. It's not polished. You don't need a copywriter. And you can really get a chance to connect with somebody both in terms of urgency and authenticity. Well, and you're in there with both feet. When I went to the Ampizza website to reach out to you for the interview, I couldn't email you and I couldn't call you. I had to text. And I was amazed at how pleasant the experience was. I texted. They replied to that text. I supplied my information and my email address. You personally replied back to me. And so the conversation went. But it was a very intimate experience where I felt heard on an individual basis. And it didn't feel manufactured or inauthentic in any way. I think that call, Josh, of I felt heard is so important. That's the feeling. I hear people a lot of times talk about, I want to get a human on the phone. That's not necessarily what you want. What you want is feel heard. And if there's a robot or an automated attendant where you just end up yelling, agent, 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 <laughs> to, get, like, to get through it, right? That's because you're not feeling heard. But I think text is really fascinating, primarily because of the data architecture that can sit behind that and how you can use all the muscle of CRM to be able to create unique custom journeys for people that feel really personal that is enabled by it being text messaging. And you're also able to leverage that data to continue the conversation whenever you want, however you want, about whatever you want, right? Yeah, I think one of the most fun things that we've done with text messaging is we're a DC brand, fall of 19, the Nationals were within a few games of the playoffs and the Phillies were coming to town and Bryce Harper had moved from the Nats to the Phillies that year. And so it was like last week, old guy coming back to his old town with the new team. We ran a promotion where if you texted us, hashtag you're out, every time Bryce Harper struck out within 60 seconds of the strikeout, if you texted us, hashtag you're out, we gave you a $3 pie. We had thousands of people text us every time Bryce Harper struck out. Like I remember being here late on a Thursday night with the entire GX team, watching the game on the screen, waiting for him to strike out. And then just watching the text line explode and having volume go up 2000% in 60 seconds. And over the course of the five game homestand, he struck out six times. We acquired <laughs> 10,000 new customers as a result of that. And it was so electric that by the time it was the last game of the series, Harper's up at bat and the whole stadium is chanting, we want pizza, we want pizza. Because like everyone now knows that that's what's going on and that and pizza is trolling. It's the old superstar for the team. The power of that text messaging, engagement, quick response, cultural relevance, reach and virality all at once was so cool. But that wasn't even it. That happened. And then over the course of their run through the playoffs, we now had like 8,000 people who we knew were baseball fans and paying attention to us. And now you could retarget them with an offer or in some cases, just talking smack about the game. And it was right. so much fun to watch a brand just be able to interact individually with people, including to not sell them anything, but to just talk to them about something we knew they cared about because they interacted with us about it. And for me, that is gold. When you can unlock that as a brand, 
it's gold and it makes it fun. Like the people working on the other end of that text line were having fun with that. And that's all in-house. Yeah, all in-house. Yeah, it's our team. Eventually, over time, we will continue to use natural language processing and AI to help us with the things that are perfunctory. But the real magic sauce of it is hospitality. And the funny thing is, it's a great way of like you're using tech to actually increase the hospitality in the experience, not remove it. Because how many people go to a fast casual restaurant and come home and are just floored by the service they got, right? That's not a common thing. Like you don't go through the line at Chipotle, get back to the office and then be like, you guys, I had the most incredible hospitality (laughs) at Chipotle today. I mean, if you're sharing that story, it's because you damn well did. But what does get you talking to your friends and sharing about how it's touched you differently is when you're on the couch watching the game with your buddies and your pizza company is texting you about the play that just happened. And you're like, hey, check this out. And that then gives you a whole new set of content. In a world where content is king, you've now got the person who participated, who's now celebrating, who's screenshotting their phone and tweeting it to their friends. And we can turn around and boost it on our social media and be like, look at this, guys. This is real. I want to talk about people again, because it's such a central focus for you. And one of the things that came out in the conversation we had prior was about how you're in the people business and pizza is the vehicle and it's a culture-driven company. And I want you to share some of your company's core values and how they manifest on an executive level and with your front-of-the-line employees. Yeah, so for and pizza, there was always the and before there was pizza. The ampersand in and pizza really represents unity. It represents connectedness. It represents the chance to introduce something very different than the divisive rhetoric that we hear in the world and watch play out in front of us a lot of times these days. And so it started with that symbol. And then, as you mentioned, Josh, pizza is the first vehicle. And I say the first vehicle because there's so much in that brand of the ampersand that I think there's no reason why it can't be a part of other things in time as the brand equity continues to expand. But with pizza as its first vehicle, pizza is an inherently shareable food. It's an inherently universally appealing food. It's the kind of thing that tends to bring people together and gets you a chance to break bread. And so it's very, very cohesive with that baseline foundational piece of the ampersand, which is unity. The values of the company that stem from that are, first, celebrate oneness. That's like a core value for us that is about people being able to bring the best version of themselves to bear in this job. And so that manifests itself actually quite similarly in the executive suite or at the shop level. And it's probably the easiest value for everybody top to bottom in the organization to understand. It's this value of individuality and celebration of who you are and the unique, wonderful things that you can bring to the table and an effort to maximize that and get the most out of you at work. And that's where that blind spot recognition piece comes in too, because the more diversity you build, the more people you have to cover those blind spots and build a complete opportunity for everyone to feel welcome. I think one of the things I'm most proud of, last engagement survey that we did, asked people, what percentage of you are proud to work for this company? 
And we were like 82% top box on that, on the engagement survey of like, I am proud to wear this ampersand. And like, you see people, they want to wear the shirt. They want to wear the swag when they're not at work. And I think that is also very, very rare in the restaurant business. You don't see people like pridefully traipsing around town in their work gear oftentimes. The second value is make your mark. It's an accountability value. It's about people making an impact. And if you bring your whole self to work, how can that in turn make a difference? And I think that's foundational to why I came to the brand, like the desire to make an impact, this idea that every one of those interactions that you have, whether you're on the text line or whether you're face-to-face with somebody in the shop, is a chance to change the game on somebody's day. It's a chance to make an impact, make your mark, be heard, do something of consequence. And so that's the second value. And I think individually at the shop level, it's many of those things that I just shared. At an executive level, for me, it really resonates as how many people am I raising up by what we're doing? Is the impact that we're having helping raise more and more people into greater states in their lives and greater opportunity for them and their families? The third value is unite the house. This is a sort of like we're all in it together value, a value of teamwork, of empowerment, of this idea of you look left, you look right. Like if you're familiar with mottos in the Marines, the Marines are all about looking after one another. It's one another, then the core broadly, then the country. And Unite the House for us, it's really about being able to watch each other's back, watch each other's blind spot, anticipate what people are going to need, help people from stepping in it. A lot of times in corporate companies, people are looking for somebody else to step in it, looking for a way to potentially have a zero-sum game to get ahead. And for us, that value is really about recognizing and supporting. And the last value for us is change the game. That's an innovation value. Because this is a founder-led, creatively-led concept, innovation will always be an essential part of the brand identity and something that we will have to continue deliberately investing in and measuring against as we go. Because if we're going to be 1,000 units, 2,000 units, 10,000 units someday, and we're going to stay close to that ideology that you mentioned earlier, you must be innovative. It has to be fresh. It has to be new. You have to be leading so that people are continuing to get magnetized to that and brought closer to the orbit. What does the future look like for Am Pizza? If you were to look out six months, 12 months, 24 months? Immediate term for us, we are in growth mode. From a 2021 objective standpoint, the single biggest thing that we are doing is growing our footprint. While many other brands retracted during COVID, we've been deliberate and intentional about expanding. We opened more shops in an eight-week period last fall than we did in the entire year prior. And in 2021, we will open at least 25 new pizza shops on the base of 46 that we own and operate today. And so that's really aggressive growth. And the thing that you will notice most six months from now is that we look different. We have eight or nine new shops in the ground, and we've created opportunities for dozens of new leaders and hundreds of new family members. As you look further out into the future and start thinking about what's 12, 18 months from now, starting to think about ways in which we continue to push decision-making deeper into the organization, continuing to look at ways to democratize this business and give pieces of it away to the team that's making it happen as we expand geographically out from where we are today along the mid-Atlantic coast. And as you think about five to 10 years down the road, we have aspirations to be pizza's future 
to be this next generation's version of what people have come to know from Domino's or Papa John's or Pizza Hut or whatever today, only to do it with livable wages, ingredient transparency, socially conscious umbrella, an intentional investment in social justice, and a democratization of decision-making for the brand, all kind of tied back to this idea that we want to prove you can do both, that you can do well and that you can do good and win. And we believe that we've got, because of the technology and because of the exceptional people that are here and because of the commitment of the shareholders and the people in our orbit, that that not just will be, it is our destiny and we will be there. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you would like to offer? I think that for me, one of the most important investments leaders can make is an investment in their people. We spend a lot of time talking about return on invested capital in this industry. Private equity investors or founders are talking about how soon they can make the dollar back that they have put in. And traditional private equity investing has very strict protocols. Got to get my 3x in five years and so I can fund my 2 in 20 for my LPs. And I think that that's dangerous for the future of restaurants for the long, long term, because investments in people pay back significantly greater over a longer and longer period of time. And so my greatest piece of advice for the industry is think about the investments that can be and should be made in people and what your business can look like 10 years from now if those dollars are reinvested into the people doing the work. One of the things that really struck me about the last six months in the United States is learning more and more about how much of the racial inequality in this country is driven by income inequality. And that, if anything, has made more of an impact on closing that gap. Raising the minimum wage had the single greatest impact on racial income inequality in this country. And I think that's just a gut check for us in this industry to think about like, if we really want to be agents of change, we really want to make an impact on the industry, because this is an industry podcast. If we want to change the game for the industry, we must, must, must invest in our people. That's Andy Hooper. For more on And Pizza, visit andpizza.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our other content, or read our daily publication, go to fullcomp.media. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.